So I'd love it if you could turn there, Psalm 139. The page is going to be page 521 in the Pew Bibles. If you grab that one, you can turn there. If you've got it on your phone, get those open. Psalm 139, and the page is 521. And we're going to read the whole of this psalm. Search me, O God, and know my heart. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Verse 1. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, acquainted with all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there, shall, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for the darkness is as light to you. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God! O men of blood, depart from me! They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Ben, over to you. Thanks, James. Well, does it ever feel to you like this world is just on fire and not in a good way? From the literal fires that sweep across our land and seem to be growing more prevalent each year to the metaphorical fires that sweep across our geopolitical, our social, our societal uh, landscape with just as much destructive power, it's easy to become overwhelmed with a sense of despair and hopelessness when we look at the world around us. As our world has grown exponentially more connected, we become desensitized by the constant flow of information available at our fingertips. As a result, we've seen a shift in our news and our media to a model that relies on constant uproar and outrage to drive clicks and viewership. This generation that we live in right now has been described as the most connected generation in human history, but also the loneliest generation in human history. 
We live in a culture that is obsessed with image and status, and too often we fail to interact in a meaningful way with those that are closest to us. While we busy ourselves projecting our perfectly filtered lives to people that we don't even know, as we absorb and compare ourselves with their perfectly filtered lives. Furthermore, as our ability to communicate globally has developed, our perceived need to interact locally has diminished. As a result, our sense of community has withered, and we've forgotten how to do the little things that foster community right here. If you don't believe me, then next time you're getting a coffee or at the bank, take a look at the people around you. Here's what you'll see. You'll see a lot of people in the same place at the same time for the exact same purpose, yet very few of them are actually present. Most of them have their shields up, this body language, saying, I'm not interested, don't bother me. We put these buffers in place. We try to escape in this way, partly because life is hard. It's often painful, and building those new relationships, those new friendships takes time, and it takes a lot of effort. But we are creatures made for community. This is evident from the very first passages of Genesis all the way through to the end of the New Testament. And as we've seen in uh, the community groups in our recent study in Mark, uh, we know that this is true. When we fail to adequately engage in community with others, we quite literally miss out on a large part of what it means to be human. This diminished role of community here in our culture, paired with a hyper-competitive and comparative society, an explosion of cultural, moral, social, and ethical relativism, and the never-ever-present grind of outrage and violence in media. And it's no wonder that so many people feel anxious and overwhelmed, even to the point of despair. At best, this perfect storm is clearly indicative of the sin nature of this world, and we feel the burden of original sin in the day-to-day struggles of this life. But at its worst, these factors combine to present a chilling picture of the depth of hopelessness that's present in our society today. And that's reflected in drastic rise and increase of suicide in our two nations. About 800,000 people die annually worldwide by their own hand. It's nearly a million people. For a long time, the UK had enjoyed a year-by-year decrease in the amount of suicides. But recently, that trend has reversed, and 2017 to 2018 saw an 11% spike in the number of people taking their own lives in this country. The figures are even worse in the United States, where the U.S. has seen a 24% rise in the number of people taking their own lives since 1999. The U.S. military, which, as you all know, a large part of this church is, has seen a 6% increase in suicides per year for the last five years, and now suicides among the leading causes of death for American servicemen. And this is no longer a uniquely male problem either, as the increasing number of women, particularly young women, taking their own lives indicates. Yet as painful, difficult, and deeply personal as this issue is, there is hope amid hopelessness. In Scripture, we have an amazing tool with which we can address the trials of this life. You know, we often paint the Bible in a rosy light. After all, it is the good news of God's salvation through Christ, and that's true. But The Bible is also full of people who experience extreme pain, despair, and hopelessness. 
And that's really important. I think it's really important because it's real. We and our lives and the lives of those around us, just like the lives of the Bible's authors, are not picture perfect. And it's unreasonable for us to expect that they would be. So tonight we're going to explore four truths that we find in Psalm 139. Four truths that should give us an unshakable hope amid the hopelessness of this fallen world and teach us that we are precious children of a God who personally knows and loves us and that we are never alone. So, back to Psalm 139 now, 521 if you've lost it already. Uh, Thanks for reading that earlier, James. We'll start with verses 1 to 6 and we'll just move through as we go. Hear now the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This is the first truth that we find in Scripture tonight that God knows everything about you. He knows when we sit and when we rise, our paths and our lying down. He is acquainted with all of our ways. In other words, He knows our daily habits and routines. He knows what we get up to. More than this, He knows our very thoughts even before those thoughts manifest themselves in our speech. Now culturally, we, both in the States and here in Britain, We're a pretty private people. Thus, this idea that God totally knows us, he knows our thoughts, our daily habits, even what we're about to say, might make us a little bit uncomfortable. But truly, I think it should be reassuring. And David tells us that our proper response to this revelation should be one of awe. Looking at verse 5, because, tell you what, this this is really amazing. God's knowledge of every part of our lives isn't just an academic exercise. It's not just useless information to him. Verse 5 says, You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. The imagery here is one of guidance and of blessing. The Bible often uses the laying of hands as a means of conveying blessing, and that's what's going on here. But beyond that, it's also a gentle, comforting, guiding sort of gesture. Think of a father laying his hand gently on the shoulder of a child, guiding that child through his touch. The Lord hems me in behind and before. God uses his complete knowledge of you to envelop you in his arms. He's guiding you in the path that you should take, but he's also got your back. The reality is that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing, and he does know you. He knows you completely, and here is the amazing hope in that reality, that when you feel misunderstood, God understands. When you feel like no one knows what you're going through, God does know. And when no one around you can relate to your struggles or to the pain that you're experiencing right now, remember that God can. And more than that, he will guide you through it. The creator of this universe knows you, and he knows everything about you. This should give us hope amid hopelessness. The second truth is that there is nowhere you can go that God isn't with you. Let's turn back to our Bibles, verses 7 through 12. Read with me now. Where shall I go from your spirit? 
Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I take the wing, or if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. That same God who knows you intimately and completely will never leave you. This is good news for us today because it means that even in our darkest nights and at our lowest lows, we are never truly isolated or alone. The first two questions we see in verse 7 are rhetorical and set a stage for what is to follow. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? There's nowhere I can is the implied answer. And David goes on to show us just how omnipresent our God really is. In the heights of heaven, God is there. In the depths of Sheol, which is a Hebrew uh, term for the place where the dead go to dwell, still the Lord is present and he's powerful. Likewise, if I take the wings of the morning, going the furthest east the east goes, God is there. Or if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, a Hebrew expression for the far end of the Mediterranean, the western edge of the world, still God is there. And the clear implication here is that in these two extremes, in these polar opposites, everything else is included as well. So in the spirit world, in the world of heaven and Sheol, and here in this fallen physical world, the world of east and west, there is nowhere that we can go that God can't reach us. And what happens when God does reach us? Well, look at David's delight and the comfort in the next few words, in the fact that nowhere are we beyond God's care. Verse 10, even your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. God will always be present to lead and hold the believer. But what about beyond the physical and spiritual worlds? What about our mental world? There's so many people struggling mentally in our world, many of them silent and alone. And this struggle, this inner disquiet that leads to darkness, is powerful and it's tenacious. Satan doesn't need to attack us head on when he can instead plant seeds of frustration, anger, indignation, or pride that lead eventually to despair. These negative emotions grow like a cancer, consuming our thoughts and distorting our vision of the world around us until the very way we see ourselves, our loved ones, even our place and our purpose here are tainted. Few people who actually give action to their suicidal ideation do so in a fit of passion. The vast majority of them are long contemplated, they're planned out, they're thought through, rehearsed, and justified, at least according to the distorted view of that individual. And make no mistake, it is our adversary who twists and distorts our view of the world and leads us in those paths of darkness. But again, there's hope. Back to verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The light, night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Do you see that? There is no situation, no depth of despair, no long night too dark for God's light to shine through. Darkness cannot exist apart from light, 
And listen to this. John 1.5 tells us the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So when you feel like you're at the end of your rope, when there is nothing left and nothing keeping you from falling headlong into that pit of darkness and despair, remember that God's right hand is holding you. When you feel invisible, when you feel like no one even notices you and no one would notice if you weren't even here, remember that God still sees you. And there's nowhere that we can run, fall, or be led astray where his love can't reach us, where his hands can't lead us and hold us. There is nowhere that you can go that God isn't with you. And this should give us hope amid hopelessness. The third truth is the incredible reality that you are loved. More so, you have been loved since before you were even born. God's word says, starting in verse 13, and this is incredible, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This imagery is so rich. This idea that before your mother even knew that she was pregnant, the Lord was at work laboring and love, forming you, knitting and intricately weaving you together. And not impartially or carelessly either. You're not the product of a genetic human assembly line. Rather, we are each fearfully and wonderfully made. And in God's book is written every one of our days. Days that the Lord formed specifically and only for you. Do you see that? Not only your physical body, but your very life. God has created specifically and carefully. And wonderful indeed are his works. So what happened? Right? These verses paint a picture of life that is beautiful. It's full of meaning, love, and purpose. So why then does this world feel so ugly and often so hateful? Well, sin is what happened. Our world and God's will diverged and we're left looking at this fallen world through glasses tainted by sin. Isaiah tells us that as the heavens are higher than the earth, so God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And that's certainly what we see here in this world. And if we want to have a proper perspective on the wonder of this lovingly created world and the omnificent, unlimited creative power that's made manifest through human existence, then we should meditate in awe as David did, as he does on the glory of God's thoughts. Verse 17 says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This is the right attitude, I think, with which we should approach the Father. No matter the emotional state that we come to him in, be it praise or dismay, his thoughts and the words of this book should be precious to us. Even if we are to fall asleep, we read here that when our eyes are opened again, the Lord is still with us, and indeed he's been there the whole time. 
Jeremiah tells us that God knows the plans that he has for us and that these plans are plans for good, not for evil, and that they're plans to give us a future and that God has loved us with an everlasting love. From the moment God first beheld your unformed substance, he has loved you. So when you feel cast aside by this world, when you feel underappreciated and unvalued, remember that God still loves you. And even if the world turns its back on you, Remember that you are loved, and you have been loved since before you were born. This truth should give us hope amid hopelessness. Now before we go to the fourth one, remember or notice that I've been saying the word remember. Remember that God knows you. Remember that God is always with you. Remember that God loves you. I'm not talking about a feeling. I'm talking about a deliberate act. Because the reality is that in the moments when we are at our lowest it often takes deliberate willpower to remind ourselves of these truths and to praise God, even in the, in the midst of dark tragedy. I want to be very clear that I don't say any of this to in any way minimize or ignore the very real pain that so many people feel on a daily basis. The Christian life, as you all know, is no magic pill to provide an antidote to all of our temporal problems or our struggles. Nor is a life lived in service and obedience to Christ one that will be free of temptation or of strife. In fact, Christians can expect to struggle, to doubt, to experience seasons of loneliness, pain, depression, and uncertainty. That's simply a part of what it means to live in this fallen world. But here's the next piece of good news, the fourth truth, that the wickedness of this world will be overcome. Again, living in Christ does not remove the effects of this wickedness from around us or from the lives of the Christian. David recognized this, and he laments to God this fact. Read verses 19 to 22 with me now. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David recognized that the reality is that this world is filled with people who don't love and who don't serve God. There are people who truly are bloodthirsty, both literally and figuratively, who prey on others instead of lifting them up and serving them. And David rightly wishes to be not identified with such people. Depart from me, he says. Why? Because these men speak against God with malicious intent, and they take God's name in vain. These people actively oppose the will of God, and they flirt with the one sin that Scripture tells us is unforgivable. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all make it explicitly clear that this specific, unrepentant, hardened opposition to Jesus, that kind that casts his works as demonic, is irrecoverable. Yet, despite David's incredibly strong language in verses 21 and 22. If we read on in Psalm 140, we find that David is absolutely willing to leave the judgment and fate of these people in the hands of their creator. He knows that in the end of days, these people will have to face their God and that the wickedness of this world will be overcome. In the meantime, David provides us with a closing of Psalm 139 that I think is a prayer that we should all take to heart. Verse 23 24 say, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. If we open ourselves 
to the guiding power of the Holy Spirit, God will make clear to us those parts of our character and our lives that are not in line with his will. More than that, the Spirit will begin to mold us in the image of Christ, and through faith in Christ, we have a promise of life everlasting. Remember, God is omnipotent, and he will overcome the wickedness of the world. This should give us hope amid hopelessness. Friends, pain, misery, want, depression, and suicidal ideation are all real, and they're present in our lives and the lives of those around us every single day. Yet despite the darkness of our world, despite humanity's inherent depravity, our God offers us an unmerited salvation. Why? Because of his abounding love, grace, and mercy. You know, 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond our ability, and that includes the whisperings of Satan that aim to pull us into that darkness. More than that, Paul says that the Lord will provide us a means of escape, that we may be able to endure the trials we face. And that's exactly what we find in so much of Scripture, especially in the Psalms. Great despair is met by greater grace and ends with stronger faith. Let me say that again. In Scripture, we find that great despair is met by greater grace and ends with stronger faith. So what sort of attitude should we have then? in the face of trials, in the face of pain and despair. Well, like David, we should seek comfort and rest in the promises of presence, protection, and providence that we've explored tonight. But Paul also gives us a great example of what it looks like to trust in the Lord amid hardships. So let's turn briefly to the New Testament, to 2 Corinthians 12. Read verses 7 through 10 with me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul never tells us what this thorn in the flesh is, whether it's a physical or a mental struggle. But it's clear that Paul does struggle with this malady for a long term. But despite his pleas, he is denied relief. Look at what Christ tells him. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I think we can all identify with Paul to some degree. Paul is a go-getter, making a difference in the world around him. He was a world traveler, street smart, and highly educated. He was somebody who could get things done. These are all values and abilities that our culture embraces and promotes, and many of us strive for. Yet Paul understood that his strength came not from himself, but from God. For the sake of Christ, then, he writes, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, Paul knew that by relying on his own strength, he would inherently fail to tap into the boundless love, strength, and wisdom of the Lord. So if you're struggling tonight, I implore you, rely not on your own strength. Reach out to a friend, to a health worker, to one of our pastors. 
reach out to this book, to God's word and his truth. Because in here, you will find people struggling. In scripture, you will find that you are not alone and that you are not the first person to face this darkness. And you will find exactly what we discussed before, that great despair is met by greater grace and leads to stronger faith. But most importantly, reach out to Christ. In prayer, just like James said, we have a direct line to the creator of the universe. Let that sink in. Direct line to the creator of the universe. If that doesn't stop you in your tracks, I don't know what will. For his grace is sufficient, and in him you will find strength and rest. Friends, we are blessed to be called children of God, a good God who personally knows us and loves us. So when you hit those low points in life, remember that God knows you completely and that he will never leave you. Remember that he loves you and trust in his plan for your life. Finally, take hope in the promise that he will overcome all the darkness, all the pain, all the wickedness of this world, and that one day we will live in glory with our creator. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to gather here together tonight to share in your word. We are humbled by your greatness and your power, and we are inspired by your love and grace. Father, as we see and experience the pain and hopelessness of this fallen world, I pray that we would not succumb to the darkness, but would put our hope in you and in your strength. Give us the boldness and courage to reach into the lives of those struggling around us that they too might know your love and promise of life. Lord, align our lives to your will. Make us receptive to the workings of the Spirit that we may wholly trust in you and know that truly your grace is enough. Amen.